Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. The Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. First off, I want to tell you guys how much spiritual warfare I have had in the last 24 hours to try to get this talk done. It has been non-stop. Yesterday night, I had a squirrel in my bathroom. It, it, it's, it's just been like crazy. The, this morning, I can't get the PowerPoint working from my computer. It's just non-stop spiritual warfare. I feel like the devil really wants to stop this message from a squirrel or from technical difficulties, but nothing can stop the Word of God. So, Shushu, get away. Stay away from here. We don't need you in this place. Welcome back for our community group series that we've been doing called Waiting on God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this series has been incredibly difficult uh, for, I know, the fathers in preparation. I know uh, for many of us, it's been challenging for us. It's really been one of these series that make you really stop, pause, and ask a lot of questions. And when we are in the middle of the waiting period, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the waiting. We've been talking about the winter season of waiting. We've been talking about where is God in the midst of all the difficulties and the circumstances when I'm in the middle of the waiting period. And as I was thinking about this, I was praying about this, I kept saying, Lord, in the middle of the waiting, the hardest thing to do is pray. Like when you're in the middle of you're hoping and dreaming and wanting something so desperately, the hardest thing in the world to do is to actually sit and pray. And the title of our talk today is Don't Quit Praying While Waiting. The question that I have for every single one of you, is prayer option number one when you are waiting? Or is prayer like the third, the fourth, the fifth, something that you don't even do? when you're in a waiting period. And I think the struggle for all of us is if prayer isn't option number one, then what is? Ask every single one of yourselves when you, we talked about the different things we could be possibly waiting for, waiting for a spouse, waiting for your wife to finally get pregnant, waiting for a job to come, waiting for a difficult circumstance or a disease or health issue to pass. What is your, is prayer your option number one when you're in the middle of the trial or are there many other things that you run to? I want to share a really beautiful quote that a book that really, I think, inspired me very much in prayer early on in my spiritual journey. And it's a book called Beginning to Pray by Archbishop Anthony Bloom. Have you guys ever heard of that book? It's a fantastic book. And in this book, Archbishop Anthony Bloom says something really beautiful. We complain that he, God, does not make himself present to us for the few minutes we reserve for him. But what about the 23 and a half hours during which God may be knocking at our door and we answer, I'm busy, I'm sorry, or when we do not answer at all because we do not even hear the knock at the door of our heart, our minds, of our consciences, of our life. So there is a situation in which we have no right to complain of the absence of God because we 
because we are a great deal more absent than he ever is. Because we are a great deal more absent than he ever is. If we look at this as a relationship, if we look at this as Abuna Paul and I, we serve together, we've been friends for years, I would consider him one of my best friends. Abuna Paul, if my relationship with him, when both of us are like two ships passing in the night, right? We're running this, hey Abuna, how you doing? Good to see you. Sometimes that's what priesthood is, right? If the two of us don't actually have quality time to sit and to talk, what happens to the relationship? It fizzles. You start to think things, you start to create narratives, you start to, so it's incredibly important that we have face-to-face quality time, and that's where we gather together every Tuesday for a priest meeting, all of us together, because it's important that we see each other face-to-face, talk to each other, communicate, share what's on our heart, pray to each other, with each other, encourage each other through the Word of God. The question is, if this is, there's no time made here, how can the relationship grow? If I'm in the middle of waiting, and I'm saying I'm waiting on you, but I've never made time for you, I don't really know you, you're kind of this distant person that is a theoretical in my life, then how, when I'm in the midst of waiting, do I come to you? I think the real question that we have to flip on its head, we talked about the absence of of God or when God seemed silent last week, but the real question is what about me when I'm absent? What about me when I don't show up for the relationship? What about me when I don't allocate the appropriate time that God is worthy of, and then I want him to step in as a genie in a bottle or as a Pez dispenser whenever I call on him? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. He comes through despite our shortcomings. He comes through despite us not asking him. Then what's the purpose of prayer? What's its benefit? I think the purpose of waiting is an opportunity to trust him and to draw near to him. When you're in the waiting period, it's an opportunity for every single one of you and me first and foremost to trust him and to draw near to him. See, when everything is great, the hardest thing is for me to go and pray. It's all is good. All is good. I got my security, I got my situation, I got my job, I got my boo, I got my, my social outings, I got everything. I got it all. The last thing that I really need is to draw near to you because everything seems pretty good, Lord. But I think James inspires us through his word by saying, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you draw near to him, he never doesn't show up. If you draw near to him, he makes his presence known. If you draw near to him in the midst of that waiting period, he honors the fact that you don't even really want to go to him. And I think that's the most powerful thing about a relationship. There are times in a relationship, if anyone's in a romantic relationship, we talked about a friend relationship, but in a romantic relationship, there are times you really don't want to hang out with your spouse. You have a thousand other things you possibly could do, but you do it anyway. Because the relationship requires that. Because you know that there is a necessity of time that needs to be put in in order for the relationship to blossom. And if I don't put the time in, then what do I expect? But I think the question, the reason why we don't have like this, you know, Arabic is such a strong language. 
Arabic has like so many more layers than English does. You know the, the Arabic expression, alaka? Alaka. Like it's such a strong alaka, like a, a, a relationship, like a, like a alaka. Like, like what, can, what English word is better than the word alaka? Huh? I mean, it's just it's such a great word. Some Arabic words don't have like good translations. But when you're like in a really, really intimate relationship, this really close bond, does God care about the little things? Like my, 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 my relationship with my wife, if she's like asks me for the little things, I care about them. Like I genuinely care about them because they matter to her. And if they matter to her, they matter to me. So how much more does God care about my petty matters? And I think the problem is we don't deal with God as though he, we are in a relationship with him. We deal with him as though he's this figurehead in the sky. And then we don't go to him for the little things. So then it makes it hard for us to go to him for the bigger things. C.S. Lewis wrote this great series of letters. It's called The Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. And I love these letters because he's trying to like figure, like write about prayer, but he doesn't really want to write about prayer because prayer is not something you could talk about. Prayer is not something that you can preach about. Prayer is not something that you could write books about. Prayer is something that you do. It's a relationship. So he says, And perhaps as those who do not turn to God in petty trials, as those who do not turn to God in petty trials will have no habit or such resort to help them when the great trials come. When you're not used to going to God for the little things, it's going to be hard to go for him for the big things. So those who have not learned to ask him for childish things will have less readiness to ask him for the great ones. We must not be too high-minded. I fancy we may sometimes be deterred from small prayers by a sense of our what? Own dignity rather than God. God, you don't really care about this. If I don't really care about this, there's no way that you would really care about this. If my friends don't really care about this, if my loved ones don't really care about this, then surely you don't care about this. But why are you diminishing what God cares about? Why are you lowering God to your own standards of what you care about or what you think your friends would care about? But God does care. He cares about the little things. He cares about the very hairs of your head, and they're numbered. He cares, about, he cares about the birds in the air. He cares about the lilies in the field. Does he not care about you? Does he not care about the little matters? I said this story months ago, but months ago, I heard a scream in my house. I said, what happened? And I looked to Heba, and she says, I lost the diamond in my diamond ring. I lost the diamond in my diamond ring. So I'm like, okay, you know, any young bachelor, y'all feel me on this one. You know, you, anyone who spent money on a ring, that is like the biggest expense you buy, like when you're a young bachelor. You're like, man, I can't believe I'm spending this kind of money for a ring, you know? And it's crazy. Like in Egypt, they say tie a string around my finger. That's all that matters. In America, we're like, no, give me the biggest diamond and the most, you know, it's crazy. It's crazy. But she, we lost the diamond. She lost the diamond. And I'm, I'm now, like, in my mind, I'm like, do not worry about the things of this earth. Do not, eat. like, you know, I'm trying to, like, spiritualize it. And she's like, are you crazy? I'm like, you know, I, and, you know, for me, you know why I'm all calm? is because we have an insurance policy. 
I'm, I'm one step ahead, you know? I'm, we have an insurance policy. So I am saying to her, don't worry, babe. You're going to be okay. It's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. We have an insurance policy. So she's like, are you going to call them? I was like, no, just give me a few days. Let me just like sit on this. So she decided to call. She calls the insurance company, and they ask her, so is the whole ring lost or is the diamond just lost? She says, just the diamond. So I said, actually, that's called negligence, null and void. Your policy doesn't cover it. So now she comes to me, and she's like, yeah, so I called the insurance policy, and it's not covered. I'm like, what did you say to them? She's like, I told them I lost the, the diamond. I was like, why did you say that to them? I'll throw the ring out of the window. Like, I, we lost it. I'm being honest, public confession, public confession. Unethical, being honest. So one of my, my dear friends comes over, and he says to me, did you pray about this? Like, Come on, man. God doesn't care about this. God doesn't care about a diamond. Like, there are people in wars, and they're poverty. He's like, dude, just pray. Just say a prayer. He cares about the little things. I'm like, no, 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 no. So I'm like being arrogant. I'm like, God really doesn't care about my wife's diamond ring. So in my heart, I said, you know what, God? I hate to bother you. Like, you know, I hate to bother you. You're so sweet and you've always been so good to me. If you can help me find Heba's diamond, that'd be really awesome. I kid you not. I looked everywhere in the house. We flipped that house upside down day one. I walk into my laundry room. It is literally sitting right in front of my face. Now, you may say coincidence. You may say blah, blah, blah. But I will tell you, I for certain believe that God cares about the ring that my wife is wearing on her hand because he cares about me and he cares about what makes me anxious and he cares about what hinders me from being able to have a clear mind and a level head when praying to him. If I don't get used to speaking to God in the little things, it's really hard for me to get used to speaking to him when I'm in the waiting period, when things are difficult, when things my, my faith is really tested. So, how should I pray? All right, Abuna, you're telling me to pray for the little things. Okay, but how? Like, I'm now in a, in a situation where things aren't good. Like, I'm waiting for that Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. I'm waiting for that pregnancy. I'm waiting for that job. I'm waiting for my husband to shape up or my wife to shape up and to change and to meet Jesus and to become a better person. I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And you ain't acting. Like, you're not doing anything. So, do I come to him and I say, Oh, majestic Lord and Father and Pantocrator, the creator of the universe who knows my comings and my goings. Like, sure, if you want to be a robot in your prayer, that's fine. Like, sure, if you want to, if you have that relationship with God, that you want it to be a robotic, expect that there's going to be a robotic answer. Like, if I come to my wife and I speak to her, hello, my wife, how are you today? She's going to be like, Melek, what's wrong with you? Like, get, get your situation in order. Like, what's wrong with you? Talk to me like a human. So how should I pray? Look how King David prays. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Is this a prayer of, this is the man who wrote a large volume of the Psalms. We get a lot of the majestic language from him. But look, when he's going through a hard time, how he speaks to God. Is it, thank you, O Pantocrator? Or is it, where are you at? What are you up to? 
What's going on? Like, if we can take these words and put it into our own language, where are you at, God? Have you forgotten about me? Have you, are you hiding somewhere? Like, are you in another place? Hello? Like, that's what the prayer, what King David is saying. Take the Psalms and put them in your own words, and that's what King David is praying. But if I have not gotten used to having that relationship, that alaka, alaka, if I haven't gotten used to having that relationship, it's really difficult for me when I have the question of, have you forgotten me, Lord? See, how many of you guys have heard of the book Habakkuk? Ran the book in the Bible, Habakkuk. So Habakkuk is a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book. Habakkuk chapter 1 and 2. Habakkuk foresees Babylon coming, and he's a, they're about to take over Israel, about to create sheer, utter havoc for the nation of Israel. So Habakkuk, in his relationship with God, starts to have this dialogue. And look at what the dialogue looks like. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Why are you letting me see the things that are going to come? Why are you seeing my nation destroyed? Like, why are you doing this? For plundering and violence are what? Before me. There is strife and contention rises. Habakkuk is asking the question of where you at, Lord. He's asking the question of where are you when all the bad things are happening in the world. The fundamental question that makes people walk away is where is God in the midst of darkness and evil? Where is he in the midst of the hardships? And that's for another discussion. But he's, the relationship that he has allows him to speak to God in this manner. When you have a relationship with him, you can speak to him as though he's a friend. And you can say to him, where are you? He goes on to say, if you are in a relationship with me, why are you allowing this to happen? Like, where are you, Lord? Why are you allowing this to happen? Question number one is where are you at? Question number two, why are all these things happening? Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Where are you when there's all this hurt, where there's all this brokenness? How come you're not doing what you say you will do? How come you're not defending your people? How come you're not splundering those who are wicked? We'll get to the answer. But I think here's the thing that I learned from Habakkuk, just from these first few verses, is you can have sincere faith in God even as you are wrestling with an unanswered question. God is big enough to handle it. One more time. You can have sincere faith in God as you are wrestling in the waiting, in the unanswered question, in the situation that's so difficult. You can have sincere faith because God is big enough to answer those questions. He can handle it. He's not worried about your questioning. It's not like, oh, if you question him, his ego is bruised. He doesn't have an ego. He's dispassionate. He doesn't, have the, he doesn't respond the way that we respond. But how do you have that sincere faith? That sincere faith comes in relationship. Look what Habakkuk says. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. He's not saying 
okay, God, I've questioned you. And I'm like, all right, see you later. He's saying, I'm going to stand. I'm going to watch. I'm going to listen. I'm going to pay attention for when you come through. I'm not going to just say this quick prayer and run away. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep being in relationship. I'm going to be persistent with you. I'm going to keep on following through in my relationship with you because I don't understand it. It doesn't really make sense, but I'm going to keep on coming. I'm going to set and I'm going to stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. The rampart is like the high places. I'm going to set my place self in the high places and watch to see what he will say to me. How do you watch to see what he'll say? Like I, The language doesn't really make sense. Like You watch to hear? What do you think? You watch to hear? You listen to hear, right? But sometimes you can't hear and you see him working. Sometimes it's not like he whispers in your ear, but all of a sudden you start to see his handwriting and you start to see him working and doing stuff. And you're like, whoa, where are you at? How do you do this? This is crazy. You watch and you see what he will say to you. You watch and you see his hand working. See, how many of you guys have ever, you, you uh, youngins, y'all don't know old school radio in the cars? You know, you have like Sirius and XM and all this fancy stuff and podcasts. Back in the day, the only thing that was available was cassettes. You, know, you, you even know what a cassette is? Yeah. Cassette, cassette. And then we got, when we, when we, when we won up, we got CDs. And then now it's like just all in somewhere in the sky. It's like all this cloud stuff. Back in the day, you would go on a journey. You would go on a journey, and you travel from New York, and you have your Christian radio station, 99.1. And then by the time you get to New Jersey, you start to it starts to get muffled. It starts to get muffled, right? And you're like, ah, oh, but I really, and then you start searching, you do the seek button, and you start searching for the stations that you're going to find that actually are going to line up with what your taste is, right? The further you are, the harder it is to listen. The proximity to God will determine what you hear. The closer you are to him, the more you hear his voice. The more distant you are from him, when you get to New Jersey, you can't, eat, you can't listen to 99.1. You have to find another station. So the proximity that we have to God, the closeness, the alaka, is what allows me to hear his voice in those moments. I've never read my Bible. All of a sudden, I want him to speak. I've never prayed. All of a sudden, I want him to answer my prayers. I've never been in intimacy with him. All of a sudden, I want him to start to work. The, the closeness, the proximity, is what allows the station to not get muffled. If the station gets muffled, then that means that you're a little bit far. If the station starts to get muffled with all the other voices out there, outside of him, then maybe there's something wrong. So your proximity to God will determine what you hear. So look what Habakkuk does. He said, then the Lord answered me. Look, the Lord answered him. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may read who reads it. He says, come here, sit down, sit with me. Let me tell you, write down what I'm about to say. What's the vision? What's the vision that Habakkuk saw? What's the vision? He sees destruction before him. He sees Israel about to get plundered. He sees darkness and gloom. What's the vision that he writes on this tablet? What's the vision? 
Look what St. Augustine says. Of what else than the advent of Christ who is to come? You see gloom, you see darkness, you see destruction, you see your situation is so dark and bleak. Write down, write down, Habakkuk, write down of the one who is to come, who is to plunder all the darkness in the world, who is to set the captives free, who's to give eyes to the blind, who's to heal the brokenhearted, who's to to be the one who raises the widow's son from the dead. Come, write and see the advent, the one who comes, who's born in a manger, who has no place to rest his head, who's humbler than the most humble. Come, watch and see, Habakkuk. You see destruction before you, but this ain't the whole story, buddy. This ain't the whole story. You think this is the story. You see the destruction before you. You think this is all that's there. But you wait. You wait till you see the king clothed in crimson. You wait till you see the king who's hung on the cross, who conquers death by death. You wait and you see Habakkuk. You write it down. Write down the vision. Write down the vision of what you're to see. I love that. I love what St. Augustine says that. Says there. Because in our brokenness, in our circumstances, in our waiting period, this ain't the end. The story's still being written. The difficulties that you're going through are just for a moment. St. John Chrysostom will say, though you sigh for a moment, though you sigh for a moment, though you weep for a moment, he uses this as an occasion to save you. Though you're going through hard times in this second, he uses this as a moment to save you. Your hurts, your struggles, you watching all this brokenness around you, God is working. He's not absent. The train is moving. You're on the platform. You can't see it moving, but it's moving. Something is working. Something is happening. The king is coming. The glory of Israel will be be revealed. Imagine all those prophets who saw the destruction, Babylon, captive after captive, destruction after destruction, and then all of a sudden, the answer is this little baby in a manger. What? You just wait, and you see. Sometimes the most illogical things are the most logical to God. Like our logic, I remember Abun Anthony one time said this. Abun Anthony one time said, he said, our, our logic is logic, but God's logic is theologic, right? And I love that. I love that. Like God's logic is way above ours. What we think makes sense to him doesn't make sense. Like, okay, God, instead of you taking me around the Red Sea, giving me a different destination, okay, I'm going to stand in front of Red Sea and you're going to split it. That makes logical sense to us? Like, let me free you from Egypt and come before a body of water? No, I'm going to split that body of water so you know that I can do the impossible. He will wait. For the vision is yet for, what? An appointed time. Write it down. But the vision is not there yet. You may not see it. It may not manifest in your lifetime. But at the end, it will speak and will not lie. Though it tarries, though it delays, wait for it. Because surely it will come, it will not tarry. I will wait. I will wait. I'm going to shift gears for a second. (laughs) When we're in the waiting period, let me ask you a question. What are the things that often occupy our prayers? Throw some things at me. What are the things that often occupy our prayers? Throw some, come on guys, interact to show you. What are some things? 
Work. Thank you. Work, work. What else? Kids. Our phone. Doubt. So let me ask you a question. As you're waiting, are you willing to let God uproot any idols in your life? So, okay, God, I'm in this relationship with you, and because it's a relationship with you, you want to do everything in your power to draw me nearer to you. You want to be closer to me. You want to speak to me. You want to know me. But there's all this stuff in my life that actually is taking precedent before you. There's all this stuff in my life that is blocking my vision of you, occupying my headspace. Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Right? So work. The ring that I got to save up to buy. The house that I want to buy. The school that I want to send my kids. Do I homeschool them? Do I send them to a regular school? Public schools are crazy. Do I send them to private schools where there's a bunch of snobby kids? It's all this, like, this, this, it's, it's this, this, wh where, what's occupying your mind? I'm not meaning to insult anyone, but public schools are private schools. All schools are good. I'm just saying, these are the things that occupy our minds. What about this problem? What about this guy? Does he like me? Does she like me? But it's, there's, what are the things that are occupying your mind? Where are the idols that are uprooting your life? Is it my security? How much money I have in my bank account? Is it my dreams? Oh, I want to do this, and I have this amount of money, and I do this in my life, and I get this accomplishment in this career. What are the things that are hindering you in the waiting period? What are the things that occupy your mind that make you incapable of coming to him in that intimacy, in that relationship? Is it a relationship? Is it the past? I'm not good enough. I messed up so bad. Is it my hobbies? There's a bunch of things that all of us can, I, can often pause and say, well, God, I think this actually is occupying a lot of my headspace. This is actually what's hindering my prayer life. This is what's making me not trust you in the moment. Am I willing to let God uproot any idols that I have in my life? That's the question you got to ask. I'll close off with this final story. You guys remember the story of Elijah? You know, you'll lo I love Elijah. I talk about Elijah all day. Elijah starts to pray. And we don't know where Elijah comes from, by the way. It says he's a, t from Tish he's a Tishbite. Nobody knows where Tishba is, by the way. It's like an unknown place geographically. Like when you study the life of Elijah, nobody can figure out where Tishba is. So Elijah bursts onto the scene, and his name, Elijah, means my God is Jehovah. The situation that he sees is there is idols everywhere. The nation of Israel has turned away from God, has backslid, and has forgotten their God, forgotten the relationship, forgotten the God who split the sea, forgotten the God who reigned men, forgotten, forgotten, forgotten. So Elijah comes into the situation where there is darkness. And by the way, in Deuteronomy, God had already warned the people. He had already warned the people and said, Take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be roused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. So Deuteronomy says, Be careful. Once you start turning your heart from God, there might be a famine that comes. There might be a situation where there is a drought. And what does Elijah do? What does Elijah do? Elijah goes to the king, Ahab, who Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Elijah bursts onto the scene, 
in a time where there's so much darkness, where people are offering idols, where people's hearts are far from God, he knows what the Lord had said in the book of Deuteronomy very clearly to the people. And because he knows the word of God, he studied the word of God, because he's been in relationship with the word, the word himself before it was written on paper, he comes and he says, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except at my word. See, Elijah's determination was to turn the hearts of the people away from their idols. And God answered his prayer and stopped the rain for three and a half years. Three and a half years it did not rain. Was Elijah a victim to that famine? You guys remember when he was at the brook at Cherith and the water went dry? You remember when he went and had to beg from, for food from a widow? Like, what he prayed for also impacted him. What he had wanted God to do to cleanse the idols of the people, it also impacted him. And it came to pass, after many days, 17, he starts, there's going to be no rain. 18, he says, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Elijah's public enemy number one. Everyone hates him. People are going thirsty. People are struggling. And God tells him, go present yourself to the guy who's trying to kill you. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Caramel. Then he bowed down to the ground and put his face between his knees. I want you guys to get this imagery for a second. Elijah prays. His prayer is he sees the idols in the hearts of the people around him. He sees that they've turned away from God. So he prays. He knows the Deuteronomy law because he's been in relationship with God. So he has the boldness to say, Lord, I want to be your man. I want you to break, break the idols that are within the people. I want you to stop the rain. And he prays. And what does God do? He stops the rain. And then God says, you need to go back. You need to talk to Ahab. You need to tell him that it's about to rain. But look what happens. Beginning towards the end of the chapter. He says, go up and eat and drink. For there's the sound of abundance of rain. Ahab can't hear it. He doesn't see it. Where is it at? But what does Elijah do? He knows what God had promised him. He knows that God's about to bring the rain, but he doesn't see it yet. So what does he do? I want you guys to see this posture. Then he bowed down on the ground. He put his face between his knees. Like, what is he doing? God just promised me that he was about to make it rain. Like, about to make it rain. No. He's about to make it rain, not that kind of raining. He's about to make it rain on the earth. God just made it, promised it. And he gets down and he sees, he doesn't see it yet. He doesn't see what's about to happen. He can't see the hand of God yet. He knows what God has promised. He knows what God says he's going to do. And what does he do? He gets down, he crouches, and he prays. Some people will say, some commentaries will say, that this is the posture of what? The posture of giving birth. Right? 
Like, they didn't have the stirrups that we have nowadays, like the fancy gynecological stuff that we have going on now. They didn't have that stuff. The way a woman would give birth is stand up. Elijah, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the idols, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of being hunted down, in the midst of it raining and then it going dry, in the midst of him having going, you read the, read the story of Elijah. It's a fantastic journey. The way that the Lord answers the prayer is through who? Elijah. The way that God answers the prayer is through Elijah. Look, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced fruit. The person who's in the relationship, the closeness, the proximity, is the person that's able to pray the prayers that are crazy. Is the person that's able to almost draw from God the boldness to pray. Where did Elijah ever learn to pray to raise a child from the dead? Like, where did that thought even come from? Is there any prior person who raised somebody from the dead except Elijah? Is there a track record for it? Like, Abraham didn't raise somebody from the dead. Moses didn't raise somebody from the dead. Where did he get this idea to pray for God to raise this child from the dead? The alaka, the closeness, the intimacy, the upper room, the oneness. In the waiting, when I'm struggling, when I think this situation is too difficult for God to enter in, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The person who's in closeness, in oneness, in unity, in, in intimacy with God, that's the person who knows God, who knows his track record, who can call on him to make the rain stop, and who can call on him to make the rain go. Elijah's a baller. Like, he really is in every sense of the word. Why I love him so much and why I, chose, I wanted his name to be mine is because he was so passionate about the idols in the hearts of people and wanted God to uproot them. Am I as passionate about the, my, my own idols? Like, Lord, I want to pray for my church to be a church where every single person that's in this room is a saint. That's a bold prayer. I want every single person in this room to be canonized as a saint in the Coptic Orthodox Church. That the Synexarium is flooded with St. Mark parishioners. It's a bold prayer. Am I daring to ask God to do that? Do I believe that God is capable of doing that? Or have I limited God to nothing? And if I don't learn to go to him for the little things and the waiting, I won't ask him to do the big things. If I don't have the boldness of prayer through the alaka, then I won't have the ability to go to him in the bigger things in life. I'll close off with this final quote. When we say, yes, I doubt, but I do believe in God's love more than I trust my own doubts, it becomes possible for God to act. The moment you say, I believe, and that is why I turn to you, implies, I believe that you will be willing, that there is love in you, that, there are actually that you are actually concerned about every single situation. The moment this grain of faith is there, the right relationship is established. One more time. The moment this grain of faith is there, the right relationship is 
established and the miracle becomes possible. The miracle becomes possible. What do your prayers look like in the waiting? God, just provide me any man. God, just give me money in my bank account so I could pay these bills. Is that how small God is? It's good. It's good. Pray those prayers. Pray those little prayers. But have you dared to pray anything bigger? Have you dared to take a step of faith and say, Lord, you know, I have a, I have a bold prayer that I pray for my children. So I pray at the end of every night when I put my kids to sleep for the nights that I can put them to sleep. My wife does it if I'm not there. I put my hand upon them and I say, may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. May you be a blessing for a thousand generations. May your faith of you little boy and girl, may your faith bless a thousand generations. Does anyone have the boldness to pray that prayer for their family, for their lost child, for their for this church, may the faith of St. Mark bless a thousand generations. May this church be a lighthouse, a city on a hill, that every single church in North America looks to St. Mark and says, that is the church that has blessed not this community, but has blessed a thousand communities, 10,000 communities. The priest prays when he's sensing around the whole church. He says, as for your people, let them be thousands of thousands times ten thousands times ten thousands doing your holy will. How many of us do we believe that God is able through our small prayers in the waiting, our struggling, our relationship with him, able to bless ten thousand people through this church? A hundred thousand, ten million, twenty million. The prayer and the effective, fervent prayer of righteous men and women avails much. Glory be to God. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart, and we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.